From New York's Hudson River Valley, I'm Ed McCann, and this is Read 650. Read 650 celebrates writers and the spoken word, five minutes and 650 words at a time. Today, we take another culinary journey with What's Cooking, featuring original stories submitted by writers Peter Hoffman, Lucille Escaro, and Martha Brill. For a brief time, I worked at a restaurant in Chicago that changed its menu every few months. It's not the type of restaurant I would choose to eat at because I don't like to eat foam. I couldn't help Dad any longer, but I could honor his memory with a shiva worthy of him. My late mother had taught me the basics of preparing the traditional meal of condolence when I was a girl. Quarantined at home, trying to get used to new routines and limitations, to new rules and boundaries, we both sought some semblance of normalcy, and we found it, cooking together on Zoom. And on today's Between the Lines segment, writer Kathy Curdo summons the aromas and flavors of her childhood into her own kitchen and onto the page. I grew up in a home on the Jersey Shore that was loving, chaotic, and either terrifyingly loud or terrifyingly quiet, depending on my father's mood. That's all just ahead on Read 650. But before we get started with today's stories, I've got some exciting news to share. Read 650 has been invited to present a one-hour program in the Bryant Park Reading Room, a beautiful outdoor space in Midtown Manhattan, directly behind the main branch of the New York Public Library. It's Read 650's return to the stage and our first live show since appearing 18 months ago at Lincoln Center. This one-hour, one-act lunchtime performance will feature a cast of talented writers performing audience favorites we've previously featured on stage and in our print anthologies. The show takes place 12.30 on Wednesday, July 7th in Bryant Park. The event is free and open to the public, and if you can join us for an hour in Midtown, midday, midweek, we'd love to have you. We begin today's show with Peter Hoffman. Peter worked for a brief time in a Chicago restaurant he says was too pretentious for his liking. And the title of his essay is a French word that was unfamiliar to me, soigne, S-O-I-G-N-E, which roughly translates to mean well-groomed, sleek, and elegant. Here's Peter Hoffman reading Soigne. For a brief time, I worked at a restaurant in Chicago that changed its menu every few months. I'm sure you've seen it parodied. It's not the type of restaurant I would choose to eat at because I don't like to eat foam, but the owner is respectable, and after graduating college, I needed a job. When I worked there, the name of the menu was The Hunt. It involved foraging and catching, and the place settings were just as elaborate as the names of the food. The first item on the menu was called Hen of the Woods, smoked spruce, grapefruit, pepperberry. Second was Catch of the Great Lakes, followed by charcuterie, five pieces of meat served on a big log instead of a plate. The log had been whittled to have five little indentations for the meats, a rabbit terrine with a purple condiment grape musk, an elk jerky, wild boar salumi, deer heart tartare, and blood sausage. Cellar-aged carrots and onions, douche de longueville, came on a gorgeous handmade plate. The carrot was preserved and dried in sawdust, 
then served with a dehydrated carrot, some fried carrot tops, fried onion, and carrot and veal jus. Then we have duck tongue, cider vinegar, apparently the hunter's version of bacon and eggs, sturgeon and caviar, quince bay satsuma had an intricate plating. The first larger gold-rimmed plate sat beneath a folded napkin upon which sat a smaller gold-rimmed plate. The actual food was butter-poached sturgeon, smashed and fried sunchoke, spruce oil, and caviar in a big bed of beurre blanc. Woodcock jolie, bearroot, urfa prickly pear was a roulade of woodcock and napa cabbage, and bitter chocolate, berries, black truffle, hazelnut, and topped with a gold leaf on another gold-rimmed plate. In case the diners weren't yet stuffed, the main course was pressed squab. This was an entire squab, the breast, leg, and brains with breadcrumbs served in the split head a wonton filled with organs, and a press with cognac. And on the side, you'd get a bowl of steel-cut oats with squab jus and bacon fat, and the roasted back and wings. Fallen leaves and kidney was served on a thin piece of birch bark. Bison and bernays included two thin slices of pink bison meat, orange prune, a kind of sweet version of bone marrow that was served in the bone, like traditional marrow. Maris Otter included a cast-iron skillet filled with barley risotto pudding that you could mix five condiments into and make your own kind of sweet, savory, grainy oatmeal. The real crowd-pleaser was the final showstopper, Tier d'Arable. A big trough of crushed ice would appear in the center of the table, at which point the server would come by with a silver pitcher of a sort of warm maple syrup and bourbon mixture and pour thin strands of it on the center of the ice. The guests then would take sticks and roll up the syrup like toasting a marshmallow to get all the sides, and the taffy would cling on top for all to enjoy. The use of the word soignier was something I was not prepared for, not prepared to use, not prepared to hear, and not prepared to have anything to do with. Every night there were guests who were considered soignier. That just means they were VIPs in some way, or an industry insider, or a friend of the chef. And everything in the restaurant strived to be soignier. Not only did they strive to be soignier, they liked to talk about how soignier it was or how soignier it wasn't, and if it wasn't soignier, how could it become soignier? Holding more than two coats at once? Not soignier. Holding the door for a guest? Soignier. Soignier was used so frequently, I never knew if they were being serious about its use. They were. And I never used it. I was never trained to need to use it, nor was I trained to answer to any chef there with we. We weren't in France, nor was it a French restaurant, nor were any of the chefs French. I was never trained, nor given any information regarding the restaurant, or the ingredients, or the process of creating the menu. I never knew anyone's name in the kitchen besides the main chef, and I never knew what was going to happen. I truly dreaded coming to work every day. I couldn't stand the idea that I had to go to this dark restaurant and watch people eat off a piece of bark and lick a stick after I hot glue gunned a feather to their menu. I thought I might be able to tough it out. The money was good, and I liked a hostess who worked with me, but I knew, not so deep down, I had to get out of there soon. The final straw came toward the end of my shift one night. The chef yelled at me for explaining incorrectly to some guests something about the golden plates. I couldn't care less if it had been personal or not. But in the few weeks before I walked out the door for the last time, I was treated better. The chef who yelled at me started calling me by name, acknowledging me, asking me to help him set up his VIP tables in the room in the basement. It was like I had survived some sort of hazing, but I couldn't shake the bad feelings I had about it, so as I walked out the unmarked door for the last time, 
I ran to a small French restaurant nearby and ordered what I craved. I didn't want to look at any food being served on a piece of bark nor a bunch of golden plates or ice and sticks. I ordered a big, regular roast chicken and a glass of whiskey and immediately felt more soigné than ever before. Peter Hoffman received his MFA from Columbia University, and he writes about food. He lives and writes in Columbus, Ohio. Lucille Escaro has always been a writer, but only recently since retiring from teaching has she been able to devote herself to the craft. Her contribution to our What's Cooking show is an essay she's called the meal of condolence. Here's Lucy Ascaro. My wonderful father had outlived my mother, both his brothers, and most of his friends. I guess that's what happens when you live to be 100. When I got the call from the nursing home telling me he was gone, it was just hours after I had kissed him goodbye. I didn't cry. It didn't feel like the right time. The traditional Jewish rituals of bereavement took over as I went through the next day, planning the small funeral and the gathering afterwards. I couldn't help Dad any longer, but I could honor his memory with a shiva worthy of him. My late mother had taught me the basics of preparing the traditional meal of condolence when I was a girl. We make food that comforts people and tastes good, she explained. It reminds us that even though we're sad, life goes on. My own daughters would come help me by providing the boiled eggs and bagels, the round foods symbolizing the circle of life. As much as I appreciated the concern of friends and family, I insisted I was okay. I just needed to be busy. I needed to go into the kitchen and work and to console myself with the quiet, meditative routine in my kitchen. Soon, the counter was cluttered with baking pans, spatulas, measuring spoons, butter, sugar, flour, and honey. The poppy seed mun cookies were done first. I never could get them exactly how Dad's Aunt Tootsie, may she rest in peace, made them, but... He once said that they came close. While the poppy seeds toasted, I remembered how he loved seeded bagels. He'd smear them with cream cheese and pile on locks and those slippery onions from the pickled herring. If any seeds fell off, and they always did, he'd wet his pointer finger and lift them into his mouth. Mom used to slap his hand gently, Darling, stop! It looks like you're squashing bugs. Once I finished one batch of cookies, I thought of another and another I wanted to make. The sweet, aromatic symphony in the air drew my husband in. Don't get too tired. No, just the mandelbread, and that's it, I promised. My earlier energy was waning, and I was afraid that grief was waiting to seep in to replace it. An hour later, I went to put back the toasted almonds when the canister slipped out of my oily hand and skittered across the floor. I scrambled down on my tired hands and knees to retrieve the stray nuts and saw that the room was dusty with flour. 
On the floor near me, a sticky slug's trail of honey from the jar on the counter above. I stood shakily and wondered if all the mess was worth it. Despite the chaos, I was heartened to see the sweet result of the day's work all around the room. The Mandelbrot were baking. Crisp wafers with bits of shiny chocolate already sat in a container. Golden Mundkichel dotted with jet black seeds were cooling, and shortbread squares shone with silver sparkling sugar. I plucked a warm poppy seed cookie from the metal rack and took a bite. The rich base, with a hint of orange, was not overly sweet, and the poppy seeds popped between my teeth. I was no longer alone. When I held the crisp morsel on my tongue, what do you think, Daddy? I whispered. Are they good? I immediately saw him dipping a cookie into his tea. Black, no sugar. His gold lion's head ring glinting on his finger. While he took a bite, gave a satisfied smile, and then took another. When my deep sobs subsided, I groped for tissue. Instead, I wiped my eyes with a smeared towel. It smelled like honey and tasted of sugar and tears and solace. Lucille Escaro's work has appeared in the New York Times, Good Old Days Magazine, Reflections, and elsewhere. She grew up in New York City's borough of Queens where the neighbors were extended family and children ran in and out of each other's houses. Inspired by her children, grandchildren, and the memory of her late parents, she lives and writes in White Plains, New York, with her husband and dog, who, she says, both encourage her work. Martha Brill is a writer and mixed-media artist with an insatiable desire to try new things, and who says that each experience provides her with new ways of seeing and thinking. She's self-published four books of photography, one of her poetry, and a family cookbook and her art has been shown in numerous juried exhibitions. Here's Martha Brill reading her essay, Pots and Pandemics. It's Friday, and it's four o'clock. We enter the black squares with smiling faces and touch without touching. A 77-year-old and a 17-year-old coming together to cook and connect. A grandmother and a granddaughter 500 miles apart, preparing dinner. And what a grand time we have had. Week after week, Rachel and I zoomed into each other's kitchens and into each other's hearts. The spark that set us in motion was the pandemic. One day in April, Rachel called with an idea. How about if we get together and cook on Zoom? She lives in Arlington, Virginia only an hour and a half away by air in normal times from my home outside of Boston. But these were not normal times, not even close. Quarantined at home, trying to get used to new routines and limitations, to new rules and boundaries, we both sought some semblance of normalcy, and we found it, cooking together on Zoom. On Mondays, we floated ideas about what to make that week. We both love to cook and are adventuresome in our eating. We scrolled through our favorite food blogs and discussed meals we had eaten in restaurants. 
we challenged each other with lengthy preparations and encouraged each other to consider dishes we'd never heard of or eaten before. We texted back and forth until we agreed what we would cook on Friday. Our choices have included Spanish paella and pad thai, Russian cheese dumplings and Mexican fish tacos, cauliflower alfredo, peppers stuffed with quinoa, Ethiopian spiced lentils, and savory crepes filled with mushrooms and asparagus. Rachel grocery shopped for the ingredients wearing a mask and carefully navigating one-way aisles. I made my purchases online and had everything delivered to my front step. On Fridays, we always started by catching up. How was your week? What have you been doing? How's your college essay coming along? How's your online exercise class? We listened and we shared. We paid attention and we didn't hurry. We laughed and we commiserated. And just for the moment, things didn't seem so bad. When we felt all caught up, the cooking began. We measured and chopped, dredged and drizzled, we grated and greased, shredded and steamed, we tilted our screens to show the transparent onions cooking and the mushrooms and herbs sautéing in butter. We tilted our pans to show the bright colors of the chopped vegetables and the pieces of breaded fish turning crisp in the olive oil. We compared and we questioned, Is this a good size for the cheese dumpling? Do you think this crepe is too brown? Shall I add more chopped peppers? Did you fluff up the quinoa? We added salt. We tasted, we stirred, we set our timers and our tables, we waited and we chatted as we cleaned up a bit, checked the oven, lifted the lid, sampled one more time. Ooh, that smells good. I think it's almost done. Is yours bubbling around the edges? Did you try the sauce? And then dinner was ready. Send me a picture when you've got it on the plate. Okay, I will too. And we did, adding a dollop of yogurt or some chopped parsley or a shake of paprika, agreeing that presentation was important, texting pictures that would be the envy of any foodie, marveling at how similar our dishes looked, and always agreeing on how delicious they tasted. When it was time to end our Zoom call, we waved goodbye from our squares, threw a kiss. Shabbat Shalom! See you next week. Making dinner, making memories, sharing moments in the kitchen, both of us leaving with a sense of accomplishment and the warmth of family connection, a virtual visit between grands. We had indeed touched without touching. When she's not writing or making art, Martha Brill enjoys spending time with her family and taking writing and art classes. She lives and creates in Bedford, Massachusetts. Read 650 is a nonprofit literary organization with a mission to promote writers with this forum for true personal stories told five minutes and 650 words at a time. Please tell your writer friends about us. And if you're a writer, check out the submission calls for our upcoming events at read650.org. Read 650's executive producer is Richard Kolath. I'm your host and Read 650's founder and executive editor. Our editorial team includes Stephen Lewis, David Masello, 
Lisa Donati Mayer, Karen Duquesse, and Shelley Sadler Kenny. Our announcer is Fran Tuno, and our show is produced with assistance from Jim Russick and Sarah Caldwell. We'll be back after this short break. I'm Ed McCann, and this is Read 650. Support for Read 650 comes from the National Arts Club, whose mission is to stimulate, foster, and promote public interest in fine and performing arts. Feature programs focus on all disciplines of the arts, and the National Arts Club hosts both members-only and weekly free public events, including exhibitions, theatrical, and music performances, along with lectures and readings. Learn more at nationalartsclub.org. Kathy Curdo teaches at the Writing Institute at Sarah Lawrence College and at Montclair State University, and she serves on the faculty of the Joe Papaleo Writer's Workshop in Satara, Italy. For today's Between the Lines segment, Kathy describes how she brings to her writing some of the magic of her late mother's kitchen. I grew up in a home on the Jersey Shore that was loving, chaotic, and either terrifyingly loud or terrifyingly quiet, depending on my father's mood. It was the sort of place that made people hungry. Enticing aromas swirled out from the kitchen of my childhood through screen doors, across little cement stoops, and into the streets. Smells from that kitchen, much like what became my girlhood memories of that time, penetrated and endured. It was there where my mother, usually dressed in a sleeveless floral cobbler apron, the kind with shiny white snaps instead of buttons, made her particular form of magic happen. To do this, she used wooden spoons, her olive-oiled hands, a warm smile, and no-nonsense orders about life and how it should be lived. Watch yourself, she'd say, when we were leaving for a night out with friends. I laugh to myself now when I think about that expression in this age of self-love, self-awareness, and self-care. In addition to feeding our family's appetites with hearty, flavorful concoctions, it was in this same vein that she fed our souls. And I don't use that word lightly. I am a proud Italian-American woman who once was an Italian-American little girl, so I've given my soul a lot of thought. Now I try to replicate that magic in my own kitchen. I wear aprons, cook hearty meals, have my own collection of wooden spoons, and toss her orders, or maybe my version of them, to my children as they walk out the door and into their own lives, their own worlds. My mother's no-nonsense words spill out from me, still feeding souls. Or at least that is my hope. And the memory of my father's chaotic and loving moods lingers too reminding me that forgiveness is entirely possible and that the human condition is a stunning paradox. I write because I have to. I write because it keeps people, places, and ideas alive in me. I write because it takes me home. Kathy Curdo is the author of Not For Nothing, Glimpses Into A Jersey Girlhood, published by Bordigara Press. Her work has been featured on NPR, in the essay collection Listen to Your Mother, What She Said Then, What We're Saying Now, and in the New York Times, among others. 
Kathy lives in the Hudson Valley with her husband and their four children. Between the Lines is a weekly feature of our show, and it's the place where writers of all genres can contribute their thoughts on writing and the writing life. For details, click the submissions tab on our website, read650.org, where you'll also find our open calls for upcoming shows. If you're thinking about submitting a story, please start writing. We would love to hear from you. That wraps things up for today, and we extend our thanks again to writers Peter Hoffman, Lucille Escaro, Martha Brill, and Kathy Curdo. And after 18 months, Read 650 is returning to the stage in New York City at 12.30 this coming Wednesday, July 7th, when we present a one-hour Greatest Hits program in the Bryant Park Reading Room featuring a cast of talented writers performing five-minute audience favorites. The event is free and open to the public, and you can view complete details at read650.org events. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Ed McCann, and this is Read 650.